recorded live from Hong Kong and Toronto. Let's go. This is the PR and Law Podcast. The PR and Law Podcast. Turn it up, turn it up. With your hosts, Cam McMurchie and you and Christy. We have made it to episode 62 of the PR and Law Podcast. I'm your host, Cam McMurchie, along with you and Christy. Hello, Cameron. Ewan is an employment lawyer and partner at Duntroon LLP in Toronto, Canada, and online at duntroon.law. I'm a PR guy in Hong Kong and publisher of the Digital Bits PR and Communications newsletter at digitalbitspr.com. And if you enjoy the podcast, please tell a friend. It's the only way we can really market the show. And you can follow us on social media as well, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and subscribe if you prefer on our YouTube or SoundCloud channels as well. And of course, our newsletter, PR Law Podcast. Dot club, we welcome you to sign up for that. Ewan, what is going on over in Toronto? I, I know in the west coast of Canada in the US, there's some crazy heat waves happening, but what's happening there? Oh, yeah, it's hot. <laughs> it is hot, my friend. It was pretty toasty here today, too. We got upwards of like, um, like high 30s. And that's centigrade, of course, Celsius, which we learned is about the same thing. Remember, we had a whole conversation yes. about this before. Yeah, and it um, hit 40 in Vancouver. Uh, it was over 40 in, in, in the Okanagan, which is another part of, of BC. And yeah, I, I mean, I saw the New York Times had a, had a big feature just on, on you know, the Pacific Northwest, you know, Seattle and Portland and, and these places. And, you know, there was a, a big heat wave, I believe it was last year, or the year before, that got a lot of attention, mainly because there's just no air conditioning infrastructure in these places. You know, it's not normally needed. Um, but now this is another summer where it's just way out of hand again. Oh, yeah. No, no, I'm very thankful for our, our central air. God bless our central air and air conditioning. Um, it, it just wouldn't it would not be a very pleasant experience without it. Yeah, for sure. What else is happening there, Ewan? How's the COVID well, situation? You know, Are you opening up for, for travel? Is that going to happen anytime soon? We're, geez, let's hope so. Let's hope so. Yeah. We're getting there. We're getting there. Uh, you know, they're going to let us on let us on airplanes. If we can sort of prove that we're vaccinated, we can bring kids, even though uh, they're even if they're non-vaccinated or unvaccinated, however mm -hmm. you say that, however that goes. But, um, you know, Toronto set, set a really cool record today, Cam. Uh, the Scotiabank Arena, which I'm sure you're at least somewhat familiar with. This is where the, the Toronto Raptors and the uh, the Toronto Maple Leafs play. Yep. They set a North American record today for the most COVID vaccine doses administered in a single day at a single clinic. Oh, wow. Uh, you know, of course, they converted the Scotiabank Arena into a clinic. Yeah. Not exactly your typical clinic. Kind of an unfair anyway, advantage. <laughs> Exactly. The, the the previous record was seventeen thousand and three doses, and that was administered at a at a drive through at the uh, the Texas Motor Speedway in Fort Worth, Texas. Way to go, Texas! Back in April. Yeah. Um, well, the clinic at the Scotiabank Arena, and you know this is still going. I think they got uh, a few more minutes here. It's uh, Sunday night, Toronto time, but it's past twenty four thousand doses just at the arena just today, which is pretty impressive and a really good sign of, uh, you know, where where we're going here in Canada. Yeah, it's nice to see the, the vaccination rates just so high in, in both countries in general. I mean, I, I do get the feeling that, you know, the that in North America, they're putting the, the, you know, the pandemic behind them quickly. I know it's still infecting people. There's still a lot of people with that haven't been vaccinated. 
you know, but in terms of percentage of the population, it's it's really encouraging. Um, you know, we're 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 a couple of things over here. I think I mentioned last week that you know there are countries that are starting to open up. Phuket in Thailand is is one that's going to open next month. If you've been go vaccinated. Cam, get yeah. on the plane, oh, go hit the beach. I would love that. And then the other one is um, Taiwan has an interesting situation uh, because they are having a bit of an outbreak there. Um, but if you come from a, a COVID, a place where a country where COVID is a problem still, the government of Taiwan will pay for your quarantine hotel, which is an interesting really? decision. And that would theoretically bring in more tourists, you would think. Like if you wanted to visit Taiwan and you didn't have to put up the money for that COVID hotel, uh, it makes it um, a little more tempting, I would say. So it's an interesting move by the government there. Well, let's let's go to Taipei, Cam. You know, I used to live there. Still got still got some friends. Um, maybe that's where we go. What do you I think? think? Yeah, I love it. Continue the debate with us on social media. Join us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at PR Law Podcast. All one word: P R L A W Podcast. Send us your questions now by email to ask us at prlawpodcast.com. That's all one word: ask us at prlawpodcast.com or on social media with the hashtag PR Law Pod. That's hashtag P R L A W P O D. Take it away, Ewan. Well, you know, Cam, we've we've talked about sort of independent contractors, the boom in independent contractors, you know, the gig worker phenomenon. But, you know, when you sort of use that phrase gig worker, everybody always thinks of Uber drivers, yeah, Uber. food delivery people. Yeah. yeah, right. These these sort of kind of um, or en- entry level positions or or lower paying jobs. You don't really think of those sort of more professional or white collar positions. Right. Well, the numbers though, Cam, they kind of suggest otherwise. So, you know, gig workers, and this is in a pre pandemic context. And this is, this is based on some, some Canadian data, but I mean, the data in the U S is pretty comparable in Mm -hmm. terms of the percentages around this. We're, we're talking about 20 to 30% of professional workers pre COVID were freelancing or in some independent contractor relationship. So, you know, why, why are we talking about this? Because I think that number is going to continue to grow, if not explode. I'm surprised it was so high at 30% even before the pandemic, though. Like, that's, that's a large number of, of, of workers already. I mean, it, between 20 and 30. So I guess it could be 20 on the low end, 30 on the high end. But even if you were to sort of take the number in the middle, Cam, that's, you know, we're talking like one in four employees, professionals that are that are freelancing or in some independent contract relationship. So right? this would high. include probably like some people who are just they might even be working in an office somewhere day to day, but they're just a contractor rather than employee. Because I know that that has been something obviously that's um, become more attractive to to employers for obvious reasons, such as benefits and, and, and things like that. But but yeah, I guess this is going to be something that really picks up speed because uh, of the pandemic. Yeah, I think so. And also because we're moving to more sort of flexible work arrangements. And again, it's going to be really fascinating to see how all of this plays out, right? There's a real tug of war already starting in in employment circles of employers saying like, hey, you're coming back to work. Employees saying, I don't want to go back mm-hmm. to work. And the employer is saying, well, here's the thing. You don't really have a choice, right? Unless you need some sort of special accommodation, 
um, to continue to stay at home, you're coming back to work if I tell you you're coming back to work. But for those employers who are moving to more of a hybrid model, and we, you know, we've certainly talked about a lot of different companies who are looking at that, I think the independent contractor relationship is a really good opportunity for employers to sort of develop a more flexible workforce and focus on on more sort of tailor-made job roles. And I think that's really going to help employers sort of access you know, a larger talent pool, first of all, because, you know, they're not necessarily bound by geographical restrictions. Um, and, you know, it should also help employers just generally save on recruiting and other sort of typical expenses associated with the hiring process. Yeah, I can see the benefits there. I guess my concern really would be around, you know, the the, the benefits, uh, particularly in the United States, where, you know, healthcare is often a benefit that, comes through your employer and i think you know i think we're, we're fortunate as canadians that we never really had to worry about that sort of thing but i know in the u.s that's a, that's a big deal so there are benefits as you just laid out for for employees as well to kind of pick pick the kind of working style that they want and be flexible if they want and maybe be remote if they want and be able to work you know uh for a company in another city than their own because they can work remotely those are definitely benefits but there is that sort of downside to it uh as well if more employers kind of go this route theoretically yeah absolutely i mean you know it's easy to sort of talk about increased flexibility for employees in terms of the where how when and and whom they're sort of providing their labor to but yeah i mean you raise a good point um there's a reason why independent contractors and precarious employment have gone hand in hand. And that's because more often than not, they're, you know, they're not receiving any of the typical benefits that employees receive, such as, you know, paid vacation or um, sick leave, any number of other issues that are, are sort of, you know, baked into the typical terms of an employment agreement. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's an issue. So you've really got to have to going to weigh pros and cons as an employee in terms of what do I want out of my out of my labor going forward? What am I looking for? Am I looking for that flexibility? I mean, if, if that's what you want, you know, I think you're going to have an easier time, arguably, than ever before, um, sort of meeting those goals. But inevitably, there's going to be some consequences. There's always going to be a trade-off here, um, much like what there will be for for employers. And I think sort of the big thing for employers, if they are going to move to more of these models, is they've got to make sure those contracts and agreements are, are being reviewed by employment lawyers to make sure that the nature of the relationship is what they intend it to be. Because just because they say, oh, hey, we're hiring you as an independent contractor, that doesn't mean that that's what the relationship is. It very well could be an employer-employee relationship, despite sort of the employer's best intentions to the contrary. What does that mean exactly, though? Because even if it's an independent contractor, if you're being hired by a company, you're still reporting to somebody because you, you have a deliverable or you have tasks that you're contracted to do. So how would the nature of the relationship, I guess, be be different? Yeah. And I mean, you know, this this really sort of depends on juris from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. But if I hire you, Cam, as an, my employee, and I'm sorry, as employee, I hire you as an independent contractor and I present to you some sort of independent agreement clearly setting out and stipulating that you know 
you are not my employee. I will not be providing you with vacation pay. I will not be um, deducting employment insurance or Canada pension plan, these sorts of things. That doesn't really matter if, for example, you are working for me full time, you're coming into my office, you're not working for anybody else, um, you're using I my see. tools and my equipment, then from the perspective of, of the court and, and employment legislation, you're an employee, whether you want to be or not, whether I want you to be or not. So that's why it's really critically important that employers and employees as well, because there are consequences from an employee there as well, if they're operating under an assumption that they're an independent contractor because they want to be, um, and the law would characterize them as a, as an employee. So on both sides of the fence, Make sure you have somebody look at the agreement to make sure that you're signing up for what you actually think you're signing up for. Yeah, this kind of reminds me of like common law, living common law, right? Like, I mean, if you get divorced, you kind—it's kind of fifty-fifty with the with the family assets. And then if you're living common law but not married, uh, you still may do that just because you are living in a situation that is akin to a marriage. Therefore. You know the, the 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 settlement or the separation is kind of treated the same way. It sounds like that by what you're explaining. If you're showing up at work every day, and you have a boss and you have no other job, that 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 just looks like a, a regular employer employee relationship. Yeah, I mean, I guess. I mean, really, I, th I think where you're where you're sort of hitting the nail on the head is that the the relationship or the situation that you think you're engaged in isn't necessarily the situation or relationship that you're actually engaged in so yeah. make sure that you're sort of clarifying the terms of the terms of the agreement right um in any event i i think we're going to continue to see a boom in independent contractors going forward because you know there's a lot of employers there who much like the employees who are taking stock of things and thinking huh, so wait a minute, I don't have to go back to an office five days a week. I don't have to, I don't have to do that anymore. I have alternatives. You know, employers are, are asking themselves those same, same questions as well. And they're going to be looking to get some sort of benefit out of all this. And if they can create and craft more tailor-made arrangements with independent contractors working in sort of a, you know, a discrete matter, for example, and that that will help them to sort of further reduce overhead. Really, I mean, there is no better time to sort of redraw and reestablish those boundaries, right? Mm -hmm. You and I mean, if there are people out there, people listening who are working full time somewhere, or maybe even part time, and you know they're they're being asked to go back into into an office uh, most of the time, and they don't want to do that, you know, but they don't really want to quit their job either because there's obviously a certain level of anxiety around that. I mean, what would you advise them? Would you say they should talk to their, their, their boss or their supervisor about the potential of working from home or what should they look out for? They, they absolutely should engage in that in that conversation, because, I mean, from a legal perspective, they don't really have many options, at least at mm -hmm. least here in Ontario anyway, um, again, unless they require some some particular accommodation. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, don't don't lawyer up in a scenario like that with, with something ridiculous, like, Oh, I can't work because of made up circumstance or made up situation rather. Yeah. Sit down and have an honest and frank discussion with your employer and say, look, this is where I'm at. Um, things have really changed for me over the last year. My priorities have shifted. 
But, you know, I want to continue to work here, just not in the capacity that I have been. Can we come to some sort of an arrangement? You know, and I think most employers, if you have a really good employee, you're going to do whatever you can to keep that employee, right? And that may include crafting a more flexible arrangement such as, sure, you can work from home two days a week, but I want you in the office the other three or something along those lines. But really, you don't know unless you engage in that discussion. And the surefire way to do it is, yeah, schedule a meeting or a call with your boss and be frank and open and see what happens. That's really the best way to go about it. Yeah. yeah I mean, you say if it's a good employee, the employer is going to want to keep the employee. But I guess on the other side of that, is also the calculation of if I acquiesce or if I'm flexible and give this to you, this may be opening Pandora's box for everybody else on the staff. And so that would be an argument if they didn't, if they weren't, if the employer was not comfortable, um, you know, uh, with remote work, that would give them a reason maybe to not take, take, um, take your request seriously or not grant your request. But I guess, I mean, that's just a hazard that's a, just a potential result i guess out of this there's no guarantee you know that people are going to be able to to work remotely but we are seeing especially again in the united states and parts of europe that that people are walking away from jobs right now at, at quite the clip uh, there's a lot of positions unfilled because people are just not willing to go back to the life that they had before yeah you're right and i think you're also right that it is opening pandora's box uh, but it opens pandora's box both ways in so much as well if i give it to this person, does that mean I have to give it to everybody else? But it also means that if I don't give it to this person, does that mean that I theoretically could then lose um, a whole a whole bunch of good employees that I want to keep around who are going to immediately start applying to competitors who are prepared to offer those sort of alternate arrangements and more flexible work arrangements? That's sort of the thing that that employers have to be concerned about and watch out for. Um, so yeah, I mean, really the whole landscape around this stuff is just changing in real time and it's a really complicated process for employers and they really just, they should get seek counsel on these issues. Don't try and figure this stuff out on your own. It's complicated. And I think it's going to remain complicated for the foreseeable future. Show your support to the PR and Law Podcast by making a one-time donation or setting up a subscription with us on Patreon. Every little bit helps us keep the lights on and bring the show to you each week. If you'd like to chip in, please visit PRNLawPodcast.com. That's PRNLawPodcast.com. Click support the show. Thanks for helping us out. So, Ewan, we've talked about Jeffrey Tubin a lot on this show, the former New oh, Yorker Jeffrey. writer. Yeah, we, uh, I'm, I'm returning to that well, as it were. And, and I know, it, you know, we, we discussed him a little bit a couple of episodes ago. And I, I want to go a little deeper into this, only because, you know, in one of the uh, sort of PR trade magazines that I, that I read, there was quite a lengthy article that looked at how CNN handled Jeffrey Tubin's return to the airwaves. Because, you know, as we touched on, it was quite awkward at times. And, you know, CNN, uh, Alison Camerata, who was actually a former Fox News uh, host, you know, basically introduced Jeffrey Tubin and went through the accusations against him. And they addressed it in a, in a really kind of open way. And just in case our listeners haven't heard that yet, I just want to play that part. Uh, you know, when Camerata begins to talk about this, when she begins to discuss Jeffrey Tubin, here it is. 
Hi, Jeffrey. Hello, Allison. It's been a while. It has been a while, indeed. I feel like we should address um, what's happened in the months since we've seen you, since some of our viewers may not know what has happened. So uh, I guess I'll recap. I'll do the honors. Help yourself. Okay. Um, in October, you were on a Zoom call with your colleagues from the New Yorker magazine. Everyone took a break for several minutes, during which time you were caught masturbating on camera. Uh, you were subsequently fired from that job after 27 years of working there. And you, since then, have been on leave from CNN. Do I have all that right? Um, you got it all right. Sad to say. Okay, so let's start there. Okay. Um, to quote Jay Leno, what the hell were you thinking? What did you think about that, Ewan? How CNN yeah, handled that? You no, know, I'm glad you brought this up because I, I watched this with great discomfort. And what I thought was really interesting is there was so much in in sort of the Twitterverse about, oh, that must have been so awkward for Jeffrey Tubin and oh, and it looked so so uncomfortable for, for Jeffrey Tubin. But I mean, what about Allison, mm -hmm. right? I mean, let's I, I can't even imagine the Allison Camerata's position in sort of being put forth to have to have to deal with that and have to address it. And I understand she's a journalist and, you know, journalists have to ask difficult questions and are put in difficult situations. But uh, I really, really, really felt for her and having to even engage in this whole discussion. I mean, I, I, for our listeners, if you haven't seen the video, my gosh, believe me, it is so much more uncomfortable than what even the uncomfortable audio might suggest. Yeah, and the audio is uncomfortable too. Um, you know, she handles herself extremely well here, I think. And you know, at the beginning you can see where she just says, "Okay, like let's let's do this kind of thing." And it's almost like just going to the dentist. You know, it might hurt, it might be uncomfortable, but it's you've just got to be brave and go in there and do it. And and that's what what she did. Now, this was obviously a decision of CNN to approach it this way and to, to really sort of hit this head on, which is, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting choice, but I think it was effective. Um, I want to come back to that in a second. But first, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put uh, Jeffrey Tubin's answer here as well. So she asked him, you know, what, what were you thinking? And here's what uh, Jeffrey Tubin had to say. Well, obviously, uh, I wasn't thinking very well or very much, and um, it was something that was inexplicable to me. I think one point, I, I wouldn't exactly say in my defense, because nothing is really in my defense. I didn't think I was on the call. I didn't think other people could see me. You so, thought that you had turned off your camera? Uh, correct. I thought that I had turned off the Zoom call. Now, that's not a defense. This was deeply moronic and indefensible, but... I mean that that is part of the, that that is part of the story, um, and you know I have spent the seven subsequent months, miserable months in my life. I can certainly confess, um, trying to be a better person. I mean, in therapy, trying to do some public service, um, working in a food bank, which I certainly am going to continue to do, working on a new book about the Oklahoma City bombing. But I am trying to become the kind of person that people can trust again. Uh, there's a lot to unpack uh, in this answer. Oh, it's so weird. Yeah. So first of all, he does use a very, very tried and true PR technique here in that he says, you know, 
in my defense or not in my defense. And he, he talks about the fact that he didn't think he was on, on camera. Now, obviously, that is him defending himself. That is him pointing out, hey, I didn't know. But he can't appear to be trying to defend himself and justify it. So he couches it in language of, this is indefensible, not in my defense, but. And I mean, this is a, a very common sort of trope where you do apologize or you do defend yourself, but you couch it in language where you're, you're not or you can't defend yourself. But you still get your message out there, which is, which is really important. The parts that I had a hard time with personally were just the parts around the food bank and therapy and things yeah. like that. Now, what is the therapy about? Because, I mean, theoretically, masturbating is normal. So, and it was an accident that he was on the Zoom call, as he was explaining. So what, because he said, I, I'm, I'm going to therapy to, to be somebody that people can trust again. And I found that a bit odd to my ears, based on what happened. What yes, you think? me too. I think it was specifically the line, I'm trying to be a better person. Right. <laughs> like what is what what does that what does that yeah. mean? So a, a person who doesn't masturbate is that better person that you're trying to be and through public service and therapy you're hoping to get there? Yeah. Or is it I'm trying to be a better person who turns off his camera before he masturbates? Like I I don't it's it's odd. Like it was a mistake. And then I like the the the, the food bank part also kind of confused me I, like i'm not and i have seen some criticism that this is kind of you know what high profile people think they should do is go work in a soup kitchen or a food bank or something but it just seems it seems very random you know if, if the offense was somehow related to you know the underclass or or if there was some sort of class issue in in what he had done wrong i would see but I'm not sure where I, I just I can't see how that integrates into into what the actual offense was here and, and why that was something that he figured he should do. That also confused me. Exactly. And that's what's that's what's missing. Right. There's there's sort of an, a lack of addressing what the core issue is. It's more a situation of almost like classic penance. Right. So, mm -hmm. you know. You did this thing. Now I have to pay penance. I, I need to be punished. So this is what I'm going to do. Public service and yada, yada, yada. But it, it, at no point is the core issue actually being even spoken to, never mind uh, actually addressed. Right. And now I, like that is he, he does speak for another seven minutes or so. Um, the, you know, it's a longer. Oh, segment. yeah. It's, it's, it's awkward. It, yeah. goes, it seems like it goes on forever. <laughs> it's quite a long one. And there will be a link in the show notes uh, if you guys want to go have a look. Um, but I, I wanted to talk about the, the, the breakdown done by Evan Neerman in the Media Post. Um, and, and I do agree with his sort of broad conclusions. And, and one is that, you know, he, he called this a masterclass on how to appropriately address a stunningly uncomfortable situation. And, you know, one of the things that he points out is that Jeffrey Tubin could have returned to CNN's airwaves. They could have just had him pop up, you know, quickly in a story somewhere or, you know, just sort of get back on the job and slowly ease him into the daily grind again. But they didn't. And they just addressed this horribly uncomfortable situation really head on. And I, I do 
give CNN credit for that. It was uncomfortable to watch. You know, I think everybody who sees that, you know, nobody's going to say that, you know, Allison and 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 Jeffrey were both relaxed for this. I mean, it was an odd situation. Um, but but the fact that CNN went about it this way, I I do think was a good way to do it because there's going to be you know people like me who are playing these clips on shows and and it did happen a lot. I mean, there was a lot of ridicule out there. Uh, for Tubin mainly, and some sympathy for 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 Camerata, but but you get past it, and now he can appear on those airwaves and continue on, and it's been dealt with. There's not there's not going to be any more to this unless he makes another mistake. Yeah, I thought you know one thing that I thought was really interesting about the initial comment was you know the, the line that Allison drops about you know to quote Jay Leno, "What the hell were you thinking?" Because of course that's an allusion to Hugh Grant who was caught with a prostitute and rather infamously, you know, was had that question put to him by by Jay Leno when he was trying to do his mea culpa. And I thought that was sort of an interesting reference point for those who are old enough to sort of to sort of get it, because it, it's almost as though they're trying to frame it in that context of, you know, this was something that was almost sort of silly shall I say, can I say that silly? Um, and, you know, let's sort of poke fun at it the way that Jay poked fun at Hugh Grant, who then, you know, very quickly went on to, you know, continue with his career, like nothing had happened. Right. It was an interesting illusion. I thought, um, yeah, I hear where you're coming from. I don't think that CNN was trying to make it silly though. Like I, I think they did treat this with quite a bit of seriousness, actually, uh, just the way she kind of came into the segment. It was kind of like they went back and forth. There was not joking around or made it seem light i think if anything she did make it seem like something serious you know and um and he did as well in terms of sort of how he was apologizing for for what happened and and you know that's another point that was mentioned by by nearman in his article is that you know tubin did a good job of sort of presenting himself as a flawed human who makes mistakes and that's something that he does say in in uh answers after the clip that i played and he called what he did deeply moronic and indefensible. Like any time a public figure or anybody is caught in a scandal or has done something wrong, this is kind of the playbook. Come out and, and really apologize, take ownership, be accountable for that. And I think Tubin did that. And the other thing that Nierman said is that Tubin was calm, serious, you know, the, the entire time. And I think that was... Um, he deserves praise for that as well. I think that was also a, a good approach. He was uncomfortable, but he wasn't he wasn't making light of it. He wasn't making it into something that we could be making jokes about. He does take it seriously, even though the situation seems so odd that it's crying out for some somebody to sort of break the ice. You know, he treats it with with the seriousness that it, it deserves. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. It's it's and I also just liked deeply moronic, indefensible yeah. <laughs> as far as apologies go. I mean, that that that's that's pretty good language to work with. Deeply moronic. On the other end of the scale, you win is Chrissy Teigen, the uh, the famous model, and I, I don't know, I guess we can call her a Twitter troll. You know, she um, it, it came to light several weeks ago now that she had been bullying people online. Actually, people were aware of this, but a woman named Courtney Stoddard was was interviewed and and talked about how the bullying that Chrissy did of her really impacted her in a in a, in a really negative way. And, you know, sure enough, Chrissy Teigen has been one of the Internet's big trolls, you could say, if you look back through her Twitter feed. You know, she's really poked fun and said some awful things 
uh, to certain people. You know, one of the examples is, is you know, uh, about eight to 10 years ago or so, I don't have the exact year here, you know, she poked fun at a, at a, a Saturday Night Live actor's announcement that they, that he had a, a son and they named their son Meredith. And Chrissy Teigen went to town on that and said just some awful things to this new dad. And yeah, sure enough, there's a long track record there. And it's finally come back to her and she's really been put on the hot seat. And she too has been trying to apologize for some of her very bad behavior. And the interesting thing is it's not getting the same respect that Jeffrey Tubin's has. Now she, in her case, she wrote a medium post. Uh, it's a, it's a five minute read. Uh, and again, you, you can go and, and take a look at it. And she does take responsibility as well. And so in one part, Ewan, she writes, quote, as you know, a bunch of my old, awful, awful, awful tweets resurfaced. I'm truly ashamed of them. As I look at them and understand the hurt they caused, I have to stop and wonder, how could I have done that? And she, right. <laughs> she takes ownership. Why, Ewan, do you think this isn't sticking the way that Tubin's apology did. I mean, it's it, it's not one-off, right? I mean, you're talking about a pattern of behavior over a prolonged period of time. That is precisely the sort of situation where people are not going to cut you some slack. Um, yeah, it, it just, it looks really, really bad. It's also just voluntary and self-imposed because it's over Twitter. I mean, nobody, nobody sort of put a gun to your head and say, said, mm -hmm. hey, comment on this individual who chose to to name their child Meredith. I mean, that was entirely of your own volition. Mm -hmm. And there's many similar examples. Now, here's here's something she wrote in her Medium post, Ewan. Quote, Now, confronted with some of the things that I said, I cringe to my core. I'll honestly get sharp, stabbing pains in my body, randomly remembering my asshole past, and I deserve it. Words have consequences, and there are real people behind the Twitter handles I went after. I wasn't just attacking some random avatar, but hurting young women, some who were still girls who had feelings. How could I not stop and think of that? Why did I think there was some invisible psycho-celebrity formula that prevents anyone with more followers from experiencing pain? How did I not realize my words were cruel? What gave me the right to say these things? Well, it doesn't read like it was written by a PR person. No, that's right. You can tell she wrote this, <laughs> kind of. You know, I think you really hit the nail on the head, Ewan. This isn't a one-off. Jeffrey Tubin's case was a, an embarrassing, almost a tech mistake, right? Like, he, he, he's, he's a boomer who didn't know how to operate his webcam and made a big mistake. But other than that, has a pretty good record, right? I mean, he, he worked at the New York, New York for 27 years. He's not somebody that, that the public has really taken aim at many times in the past for his behavior. Uh, you, you can see it was something that really humiliated him deeply, and he apologized and addressed it in the most sort of humiliating way on CNN. Whereas, yeah, Chrissy Teigen, this is a, this is a pattern of behavior over a decade and I assume before Twitter, she may have been like this in person, right? I mean, usually it's not just one-offs on Twitter either. The apology here, she has to do a bit more, you know, to, 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 to really 
have us forgive some of that behavior. Yeah, well, and also let's keep in mind, Jeffrey Tubin was fired from The New Yorker for, for, that, for that misconduct, and arguably justifiably so, right? Mm-hmm. Because it was he was engaged in an employment context, right? I mean, he had colleagues online, and from an employment perspective, you know, we can call it tech mishap, we can call it whatever you want. But the reality is, is that you're engaged in a work function with your colleagues. And it's really no different than him sort of doing the same thing had he done so within a boardroom with his colleagues sitting around, right? And clearly, that was how the New Yorker saw it. And he paid the price, he lost his job for it. And again, I think justifiably so. Um, So it's not as though he got you know, you know, he 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 wasn't punished for for the behavior after the fact. Yeah, the two situations are 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 just really different, and I think that's why you know Chrissy Teigen is having such a hard time. And you know, um, I gotta say, you and I, I think this is interesting for non comms people. I'm going to guess because you do take two situations where two you know prominent or high profile people uh, have done something wrong. And both of them have come forward in a public way to address it and to apologize. And yet it works for one person and it doesn't work for another person. And I think sometimes that can confuse people uh, because it kind of looks like one size fits all. You make a mistake, you apologize, you own it and you move on. But it's not that simple. And I think these are the, the, the little contours of the problem that are just unique for each problem and unique for each solution. And it's not one size fits all. And, you know, I was thinking like, what could Chrissy Teigen do, you know, to try and rehabilitate her reputation or to, you know, get more credibility in terms of her apology. And, you know, one of the things I was thinking about is she could reach out to the people that she hurt directly, phone them, apologize to them, talk to them on the phone and do it one by one. You know, something like that where she's actually taking time and going through something that would be, you know, for sure that would be uncomfortable for her to do that, right? I mean, she's also a a famous model with a global reach. And a lot of the people that she's insulted are, are not at that level. And so doing this, I'm sure, would not be pleasant for her. But I think it would go a long way to proving that she's serious, about what she's saying. And I think that's that's really what's kind of kind of missing at this point despite, you know, her words that indicate that she is taking it seriously. Yeah, so I'm lend some authenticity to the apology, right? That's clearly just falling flat right now. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Check this out. Whoa, hey, check this out. No, no, wait, wait. Oh, check it out. Check it out. I want you to check this out. On the PR and Law podcast. All right, you and what have you got? This is a a great article, Cam, another one of these long-form articles that I love and I know you love as well um, out of Harper's magazine. The title is hard bargain. How okay. Amazon turned a generation against labor and it's written by Daniel Brooke. Mm-hmm. And he looks at the unionization effort uh, that Amazon went through at their quote unquote fulfillment center in, uh, in Bessemer, Alabama. Yep. And this is just a, an incredible, incredible story. I mean, you know, we, we talked about um, this event on the show, the, the union drive that it made sort of national headlines, touched on all of those typical pro and anti-union sentiment issues that, are, that we, you know, we sort of typically see. Mm-hmm. But what most of the stories, at least that I read, missed, Cam, was really what was going on 
on the ground level in terms of, you know, with the people themselves, the workers themselves, the political and economic history of Bessemer, the racial socioeconomic divides in Bessemer. And this article just digs into all of that stuff. It goes back to the early 1900s and leads right up to, you know, the economic depression after steel left Bessemer to show how Amazon even ended up there in the first place in 2018. It just gives you all of the aspects of this really, truly sort of American story um, in a really just thorough, thorough way that I found a lot of the other articles I read around this issue sorely lacked. It's really well worth your time, although it will take a great deal of time. It's a pretty long form piece, but um, really amazing story. Well, I love stuff like that. So for sure, I I, I will read that. Um, You know, I am going to share something you and it's going to be really hard to share on a podcast, (laughs) but it's a uh, it's a it's a it's a graphic. It's a it's a chart. Uh, that was put onto CNN and you and I'm actually just sending it over to you right now so you can take a look at it. I am going to oh, actually okay. include this chart in the show notes uh, as the actual image. And I came across this on Twitter and somebody said, this chart is a work of art. I hope multiple people got paid well to make it and I hope they get hit by a bus. Have a look at the chart. The title of the chart is Violent Crime is a Very Big Problem. And under that, it says adults. And then you look at the chart, and there's an X and a Y axis for sure. And then, you know, at the uh, at the X axis, it says 48% for April 2021. June, 41%, but that's June 2020. It's going backwards, first of all. <laughs> and there are about seven or eight things wrong with this chart and it's funny because if you take a look at some of the comments on twitter it is hilarious because the longer you look at this thing the more problems you will find with it and nobody has any idea what it's actually trying to say and i and i want to post this for people just so they can have a look at it give it some thought and this is why you need people who understand this stuff and will look over something before it hits the airwaves. To me, this just screams of, you know, interns rushing around in the in the background at CNN and this somehow getting thrown up on the screen. Uh, it's remarkable, really. Well, I'm just looking at it now. Um, <laughs> what? <laughs> This is like it's like a joke, but I get I guess it's it not is. a joke. It's clearly. like a joke. You look like it at first you go, okay, and then you keep looking at it and you go, but this and then you just get more and more questions when you look at it. I honestly don't know what it's saying to me, but there you go. <laughs> huh. Yeah, it starts in twenty twenty one and finishes backwards eighteen <laughs> and uh we're yeah, I I wow, okay. Yep. Cool. Yep. It's great. It's a funny one. So there you go. Something light to uh, to begin the week. Good. Uh, good. We, yeah, we, we need, we need, we we need more of that we, stuff we, probably we, on our show, don't we, Kim? We sure do. Uh, you and <laughs> anything else you want to say before we, uh, we wrap up number 62? Uh, no, Kim, other than I understand the, uh, that, that COVID thing going on at the Scotiabank Center has cracked 26,000, 26,000 
Wow. Isn't that amazing? I it is absolutely fantastic news. I think uh, I think we need to do whatever you guys are doing at Scotia Bank. There needs to be replicated across the world, uh, particularly yeah. in Brazil, India, places like that. Um, it's a good sign. Yeah, I feel like there's a bad Leafs joke in here somewhere. Their inability to win, but uh, we're, we're we're I don't know. Well, Montreal there's Canadians a bad Leafs joke there somewhere are in the Stanley Cup final. It's going to be uh, yes, the Canadian team off to the Stanley Cup. Why? Yes, we should be talking about that. First, That's fantastic news. First time since twenty eleven that a Canadian team has been in the Stanley Cup final. Um, I think Tampa is going to win it in four or five games, but I am cheering for Montreal. Well, hey, that's what everybody said in every series the I know Habs have had so far. The so. Habs, uh, they they are tongue, Cameron. the worst team to make the playoffs in like a hundred years because they finished 18th in points, which is way beyond what the playoff bar is supposed to be. And now they're in the Stanley Cup final. Uh, Incredible. I yeah. So thanks everybody again this week uh, for joining us. We've got some pretty uh, pretty interesting plans for the show coming up. Um, so definitely subscribe to us on the newsletter at prlawpodcast.club. Uh, check us out on social media as well. Uh, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Facebook. We're on all of those channels. You can find out when new shows are coming out. You can find out how you can participate uh, on the show as well. So for you and Christy, this is Cam McMurchie. Light it up. This has been the PR and Law Podcast with Cam McMurchie and you and Christy. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend or leave a review. You can also join us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by following our account at PR Law Podcast. That's all one word, P-R-L-A-W Podcast. Thanks for your support.